Well, how's everybody doing? I love the stuff on the stage. Thank you again to everybody who helped out put that together. I really appreciate it. It's just uh, adds to the beauty of the season. The lights on the outside of the building, lights on the inside of the building, and hopefully the lights in our hearts. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 this morning, uh, verses 1 through as far as we get, and we'll end with communion this morning. As we pick up in verse 27, Jesus has been arrested. He's been in the Garden of Gethsemane early in the morning, um, probably past midnight there. He was arrested and betrayed by Jesus. And upon Jesus' arrest, he was taken to Annas, or Anas, uh, the, the former high priest who kind of held political sway, even though he wasn't in power. But his son-in-law was the high priest. And so as soon as Annas was done... Um, messing and, and, and ridiculing Jesus and interrogating him in the early morning hours, he sends him to his son-in-law, who was the high priest, Caiaphas, who had some of the uh, elders of Israel gathered with him at his place. And then they proceeded under the cloak of darkness to try Jesus. This is the religious trial of Jesus. Remember, the Jews are under occupation, and so there's really two uh, parts to Jesus's Trial. There is the uh, religious trial and the secular trial. The religious trial under the Jews, under the law of Moses, and the secular trial or the civil trial under the Romans who actually had the power to uh, execute people. And so they finally came for, uh, they, over the night, Caiaphas was bringing up all these false, this false testimony against Jesus over and over and over. They couldn't get anybody, but finally they had two people have their story straight and they came and said, Hey, Jesus said that if you destroy the temple in three days, he'll raise it again. Now, uh, under Jewish law, you, you know, you can't just be executed for anything. You had to be executed for a reason, a serious reason. And one of the serious reasons that you could be executed for was blasphemy. And so saying that you were going to destroy the temple of God, that was like, what, what are you doing? That's where everybody gathered. That's where God's presence was. And so they took Jesus's words out of context that Jesus would destroy the temple when actually he was talking about his body. He's saying, if you destroy this temple in three days, I'll rise it again. And that's what he was speaking of, but they didn't care. They just wanted to bring the execution charges against Jesus. And so in that context, then, then the high priest, after uh, you know, having that uh, established there by those two false witnesses, the high priest then turns to Jesus and asks the question that they all want to know. Hey, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And he puts them under oath, and this is why Jesus answers. He says, tell us if you are, this is in verse uh, 62 of chapter 26, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And in verses 64 through 68 says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We finally got him. He, with his own words, he says he's the Son of God, right? You, you, now have, you have now heard his blasphemy. Verse 66, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him, and, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that you, who struck you? And so they sentenced Jesus to death. There, The Supreme Court of Israel sentences him to death. And again, this is not, I don't think, public at this point. This is them gathering in the dark darkness before everybody's up. And so 
they're saying that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Therefore, he is going to die. Well, it's the truth. He is the son of God. And so this all happened under the cloak of darkness. But now as dawn is breaking, as we open up into chapter 27, as dawn is breaking, having a confession from Jesus, and that it was a true confession, they're now able to bring this confession of Jesus before the public and render their official verdict. So they gather again, probably in the temple courts there. And now they, um, and now we pick up in verse uh, one, where it says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. And so they're finally officially meeting in front of everybody. Oh, look at this evidence we've come up with uh, mysteriously in, in the night when no one was looking. But because they didn't have power to execute Jesus under Roman law, because they were occupied by a Roman, we read in verse two, and they bound him and led him away to be delivered over to Pilate, the governor. And so Jesus' trial, again, is divided into two parts. There's the religious trial, which is now concluded with the death penalty, but now they need to make sure Rome can actually execute him. Now, does Rome care if, if, uh, if the God of the Jews is blasphemed? No, actually, Pilate, if you go through history, he was constantly provoking the Roman gods and the city and all this stuff. And he, you know, so they could care less. So the Roman trial was brought before Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, that Southern region there. And we're going to see that play out in a minute. And so as the verdict from the Sanhedrin, that's the 70 elders gathered together, making the decisions, the Supreme court makes its way through the city. Remember multitudes are gathered in Israel for the feast of the Passover, all of Israel's gathered together. So they're now hearing this and they're gathering together to see what the buzz is. And so in the early morning, Matthew shifts his account back to Judas. Now what happened to Judas involved verse three, when Judas, his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, it's important for us not to take this as repentance. There's a difference between regret and repentance. And this is really something that we need to kind of take to heart in, in our hearts. Regret is different than repentance. And we can't take this as, as somehow this is his act of saying, uh, I've sinned against innocent blood, and he throws the money down as being acceptable to God. Not, it's not in this case. We already know that Jesus has said in chapter 26, 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He would have better for that man not to have been born. And so there's a point in which there's no return. We saw that with Pharaoh. We saw that now with Judas. We see it over and over again. There's a place where your heart, your heart hardens to the point when you're no longer responsive to the spirit of God. Even though you might regret decisions and all those things, it's not a response of faith. It's a response of regret. And so now as Judas has experienced remorse, not repentance, remorse, not repentance, his conscience is overwhelming him. His conscience is overwhelming him to the point where he's in agony for betraying Jesus. He knows what he's done is wrong. He knows he's innocent. And it's important to understand the difference between worldly sorrow, which Judas is experiencing, and godly sorrow. 
worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Paul speaks to this in, in, when he's writing to the second uh, the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter seven verse ten. This is important. Now, the Corinthians had been admonished I'm gonna, uh, by Paul, basically, in his previous letter. There's, you know, there's First and Second Corinthians. There's letters going back and forth between Paul and the Corinthian church. Well, the First Corinthians, he really takes them to task for a lot of things that they were doing. They were suing each other. They were uh, having communion and, and, and neglecting the poor. They would actually have a, a meal, and they would be getting drunk, and then the poor people would be starving. And, you know, this is their church that Paul's writing to, so... Uh, there's issues going on. They're suing one another, which is just, I think, for fun in some cases, because that was the culture of the day. Um, there's not a lot of love going on in the church, and this is why Paul has to rebuke them. And so he he writes them a letter. Um, someone was sleeping with their mother-in-law or something like that. It was pretty, a lot of sexual morality, a lot of just things going on in the church. So Paul really lays into them like a, a good leader should in love, right? To get them to repent. He's writing to them and his, and that's the context of what he's talking about. So Paul's correction of them grieved them when they read that letter. They were really torn up about it. And if you read in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9, it says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I didn't take joy. How many of you, like, you know, when you've had to correct your children, let's just say, and they're grieved, you know, there can be being upset. They can be, you know, throwing a temper tantrum or whatever it might be, but not have a change of heart. Have you seen that before? Have you seen that in your own life? Maybe when God's trying to get a hold of you, I haven't. Uh, (laughs) That's a lie. No, I have actually. Um, And what happened is they actually were broken, but not just for the sake of being broken. They were broken to repentance. When their father-like figure, their spiritual kind of fatherly figure was speaking to them and said, listen, you guys, this is going, this is way out of hand. And he starts speaking to them about these issues. They just broke, which was a good thing, which was a good thing. And Paul says, listen, I'm not happy that you were grieved, but I'm so happy that you're grieved in, in, in the direction of repentance, meaning you changed your mind about what you were doing and you moved towards God. You see, it wasn't that you felt bad for what you were doing. You actually repented. You changed the direction away from sin towards God. And that's what God desires from us. He doesn't require religiosity, you know, or sacrifice so much. We read about David, what he says, you know, uh, if you had desired in, in the sacrifices of bulls and goats, I would have given it to you, but that's not what you want. You want a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a bruised heart, that you will not despise. You will not reject. Those are the things God wants. Not that we don't sacrifice, but the sacrifice without the heart is meaningless. Like Cain in the garden, Cain, when he slayed Abel, he still offered his offering, but he had malice in his heart that would lead to murder. God did not accept his worship. But this is the situation with Judas. It was a worldly grief leading to death. Paul says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. It leads you to Jesus. That's the kind of conviction that God wants. Not a, oh man, I'm sorry. And blah, 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 blah. But, ah, and you get driven to the Lord so he can cleanse you and, and make you right inside by his grace through his blood. We do that through faith. So for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
You never regret going to the Lord. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That's the end of the grief of just regret without repentance. It doesn't lead you to life. And with Judas, it was a worldly grief leading to death. We know he's going to commit suicide here. Not leading to salvation. You see, many people can feel bad for doing something wrong and desperately seek relief from it because their conscience is wreaking havoc upon them. Now our consciences can be broken as we see in our society. That's part of God's judgment upon us where we, we don't know way, what up is up and down is down. Romans one lays this out where when we deny God as being the creator and we, there's a, there's a degradation that happens in our understanding and we're seeing that play out in our society. So people can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. They can be sincere in their conscience. That's why we have moral compasses that have a, have a moral system that is 180 degrees away from what God would say, but they would say that's right and good. There's, that's what's happening. There's a conscience that's seared. And so they're, 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 all their instruments on the aircraft are flipped upside down, but they think they're flying right side up. And we, can, we better be careful too if we deny the voice of the Lord for long enough. If we ignore him, our conscience can be seared. Our sense of right and wrong and up and down can be programmed and harmonized with the world and the enemy without us knowing, and it's a slow tilt. And so people desperately seek to get rid of this conscious that's, that's weighing upon them. And so we take medication for a depression, stop doing things and start doing other things, start going to counseling and, and take great measures to get relief from what they have done. Now I'm speaking in broad brush terms right now. I know many people take medications for different things. I know many people have gone to counseling and am I saying these things are wrong? No, I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. I praise God for doctors and medication and for people who have insight into your soul and all those types of things, but godly counsel, not worldly counsel church. And I don't think the church knows the difference. I don't think we know the difference half the time because we don't know the word of God. We need to know that, but and I'm just speaking from my own experience, but you know, depression can often be a reason because your conscience is weighing on you because God's trying to bring you to repentance. He's trying to bring you to salvation, not to get you to just push off what's going on or medicate away and change your chemistry. So you're no longer thinking about it, but so that it's dealt with at a deep level. And if you're walking away with me saying, you know, this word of faith thing where you're saying, uh, Hey Matt, you know, you just need to believe and you'll be healed. It's like, okay, well then I just won't wear my glasses and I'm great. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, I'm thankful for glasses. I'm thankful for medication. There are applications, but that's not our first go-to church. That's not our first go-to. Our first go-to is the word of God. Our first go-to is Jesus. Our first word go-to is repentance and search me, O God, and find out what's going on within my soul. I don't even know what's going on with my own soul. How many of you understand your own soul, let alone your wife's or anybody else's, your husband's, you know? No, but God knows the soul. And we need him to search us. Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. 
I'm off. I messed up. I need help. And, and you get wise counsel from godly people who, who can see into your soul. This is why Paul says, hey, man, Paul, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says, if you have, if you need, what does he say? Hey, if any, is anyone sick among you? Where's the James? I can't remember. This guy's help me here. Sorry. <laughs> guy's got to know the word of God better. <laughs> Anybody? It's like, I should have coffee under here instead of water. He says, listen, if any of you is sick among you, come to the elders. Let them lay hands on you. Let them anoint you with well. Well, what's that about? Well, supposedly the elders are supposed to be people with some spiritual wisdom and spiritual insight. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we got stuff going on in our life and God's trying to communicate with us. And one of the ways he can communicate with us is by through discipline. Hebrews talks about God loves, he, if he loves you, he's going to discipline you when you're off. Amen. How many of you love your kids and you've disciplined your kids? You don't discipline them if you don't love them that you introduce pain and suffering into their life. If they're going in a direction that's going to destroy them and others. And that is a symbol that's love. I'm not talking about, you know, extremes of child abuse and all that stuff. I'm just talking about you make their life difficult as they go down it and you direct them towards the goodness. Amen. And when they respond, that's a great thing because their hearts are starting to wake up and and what we see here is Paul says, listen, hey, let the elders pray for you. Let them anoint oil on you. What's going to happen is the elders or spiritual people around you are going to see things in you that you can't see yourself. And so if it's a matter of sin, they'd be able to identify that possibly by the spirit and pray for you. And, 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 and as you confess your sin, that's in there as well. Then you're, the Lord brings healing in your life, right? There's a direction changing in your soul and your heart. That's a good thing. And I think that's why we want to be in fellowship and not just lone rangers. So there's this discernment going on. And so listen, the world doesn't think like the church. When you've got a weighed down soul, where do you go? When you've got pain in your life or things you can't come overcome, where do you go? Who do you go to? The world says, go get medication, go on YouTube and figure out whatever else is doing. You know, go down all these paths that the world goes who doesn't have a God that loves them, who doesn't have a father that can see into their world, who doesn't have, who don't have faith. And so our first go-to church should be the word of God, it should be prayer, it should be the church, it should be the spiritual leaders within the church and get counsel, godly counsel, get godly insight into your soul. Don't be, don't go the way of the world because it very well could be that God wants to lift your heart and it's a spiritual matter, not a medical matter. Now, a godly person, a godly counsel will see if it's a medical matter, they're going to go, oh, your heart's not beating right. You need to go to cardiology right now. Like you got to go, you know, I can pray for you real quickly, but let's go. Does that make sense? So, but I think we've got it flipped the other way around, but godly sorrow, I was saying leads to repentance. So people go to solutions for the sorrow in their soul. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and it drives you to God. 
Does that make sense? And so, what does God say about your sin when you go to him, about these things that weigh down your soul? 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse you and forgive you, cleanse you and forgive you of all unrighteousness, right? He's the one who actually cleanses you of everything. King David in Psalm 51 wrote after committing adultery and murder, by the way, and the Lord convicted him. He cries out and says, have mercy on me, O God. He writes this song. According to your steadfast love, according to your unfailing love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's constantly weighing on me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And David goes on and lays out his heart before the Lord. I'd read Psalm 51 if I were you. That's a great thing. But here's an example of godly sorrow, driving him to a savior, driving him to the one who not only can forgive, but cleanse your conscience. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How many of you need your conscience sprinkled and cleared and cleansed? Go to the father. Jesus died to do this. In other words, godly sorrow leads us to Christ who cleanses us and who heals us. And our conscience that is weighing us down with conviction because of our sin. You see, Judas was looking for relief, not regeneration. Are you looking for relief? Or are you looking for regeneration? If you are weighed down with sin, come to the Father again and again and again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. But Judas comes to the priests from whom he took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw it in the temple, actually in the holy place where the priests could only go. MacArthur was talking about because of the word used was there. And he says, I have sinned betraying innocent blood. So he throws the silver that he had taken because that was the love of his life was money. And he took it and he threw it back at the priest thing as he's trying to get rid of his conscience. He knows what he did. And here's the key witness declaring that Jesus was innocent. And here's their response. Ready? They said, Oh man, you mean he's innocent? Oh, we've got to make this wrong. Right. Now they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Get out of here. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. MacArthur here says that it is possible that Judas was hoping that they would execute him. He was looking for relief. See, Jesus had a sorrow leading unto death. The death on the cross, Judas had a sorrow leading unto death. 
the death of suicide relief from his suffering. And what happened here is that they were, you know, it was speculated that he was hoping that because he was a false witness, because he brought testimony, that they would bear the weight of the Mosaic law upon Judas because to bring someone under, uh, under the penalty of death by providing false witness, you yourself would be under the penalty of death. But that's a thought. But his sorrow was not godly and it led him to death. You know, I just, it's Christmas time. And so, of course, I'm going to talk about happy stuff. You know me. But if there's something that our time through COVID kind of brought to light is that there's a lot of sorrow leading unto death. There's a lot of sorrow leading unto death. You know, I, I'm not a huge giant fan of the CDC in some respects, but I really do appreciate their, their pulse on a lot of things that's going on. Um, but according to the CDC, suicide rates increased approximately 36% according to their data between 2000 and 2021. That's 36%. That's one third about. Suicide was responsible for 48,183 deaths in 2021, which is about one death every 11 minutes. They say the number of people who think about attempt uh, or attempt suicide is even higher. In 2021, an estimated 12.3 Amer million American adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.5 million planned a suicide attempt and 1.7 million attempted it. There are many, many people with souls that are weighed down. Many, many, many people with souls that are way down, people who need God, who are going down all these roads and they're coming up empty. And you are the light of the world. We have his light. Jesus broke through the darkness and he put his light in us that we might shine it to them and give the hope of Jesus Christ. And so we have opportunity all around us all around us for these situations. If you're a believer and you're like, oh man, I'm a believer. I shouldn't be depressed. Listen, I've struggled with depression my entire life. I understand these roads. And so come and talk and pray. Come out of the darkness. Let's just, let's help one another in these situations. We love you. Amen. So don't take it lightly. And so Judas throws the money into the temple and he goes and he hangs himself. But the chief priest, verse six, taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. There they are concerned about the law there. Um, it's very apparent, apparent, you know, apparently it was okay to pay Judas off, but you know, Hey, don't want to touch the money and put it back in the treasury. You know, that's, that's blood money. So these guys are just great. Um, they're obviously missing the weightier matters. So verse seven, so they took counsel and brought with them, uh, bought us and bought with them the power, uh, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, real quickly, Matthew doesn't tell us, but acts one tells us kind of in graphic detail that Judas hangs himself and the rope snaps and his body falls apart because he was probably on a cliff and he falls. It's just disgusting. So anyways, you understand the field got all, bloody and they call it the field of blood for that reason. When everybody found out, well, apparently the potter's field was a field where they used that kind of clay to make pots and it run its course. And so it was a worthless field. They used that money to buy that field where now the strangers were buried there, the foreigners, the unclean, so to speak, people were buried there. And so the, the priest's conscience, conscience were cleansed, so to speak. And so verse nine 
Then was fulfilled what had been spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. This is a prophecy. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, interestingly, we don't have a record of Jeremiah writing this. I know some of you don't, um, aren't, aren't, you know, like you just take for, uh, you know, that it says Jeremiah. And yet Jeremiah, we don't have a record of Jeremiah writing this at all. Actually, we have Zechariah writing it. Uh, Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. Let me read it for you. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The, the lordly price at which I was, I was priced by them. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. That's Zechariah saying that, not Jeremiah. So what's going on there? And so we don't know why they're saying Jeremiah. That's the short answer. So the Bible's wrong and we can all just run away. What scholars usually say is that the Old Testament was divided into three sections. You had the law, which is often referred to as the law of Moses, the writings of Moses. And then you had the prophets, which began with Jeremiah and included all the prophets in the scroll or the, the group of writings. And then you had something called the writings, which were all the other ones. And so sometimes, and people are speculating here, that probably what happened was that when they're talking about Jeremiah, it's, just, it's another way of saying in the writings of the prophets. That's probably the answer to that. Or a scribe could have misdid it. Uh, I think Eusebius, maybe in the third century or something like that, was talking about, no, the original said this. So anyways, we don't know, but it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew knew it. And so in verse 11, Jesus has been handed over to the Romans. So he's in Pontius Pilate's grasp there. Remember, the Jews did not have the authority for capital punishment. And so they have to get the green light from Rome. And again, Rome doesn't care about God being blasphemed. Actually, that's what they do for a living. And so the Jews know this. And so verse 11, now Jews stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Oh, sorry, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave them no answer. And, he, and, and then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they have testified against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge that the governor was greatly amazed. Now notice the accusations that the Jewish leaders are bringing against Pilate that we read about here. It's not necessarily that he's being Messiah, although they tell him obviously that, but it's that he is the king of the Jews. Why is that important? Because Caesar doesn't like other kings. He's the kingmaker. Make sense? And a threat against Rome, that is a capital offense where they will execute someone. So they're twisting it so that Rome will execute Jesus under um, insurrection. And so that's how clever they are. And so upon asking Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, Jesus gives him the same answer because he's under oath there. He says, it is as you say. In other words, it's exactly what you say. And there's another dialogue that goes on in John 18 you can read about. But Matthew, what he doesn't tell us at this point, as Pilate is amazed at the silence, is that Pilate hears that Jesus is a Galilean. 
And Pilate doesn't want to touch this at all. He's hanging out in Caesarea. He's here for the, the feast in Rome. Everybody's gathered together. He does not want to have an issue on his hands. And he goes, oh, Jesus is a Galilean. Let's push him up to Herod. That's his region. And so Matthew doesn't talk about that, but Jesus goes up to Herod, where Herod then ridicules him, and they, they do things to him, and then they send them back down to Pilate. Now, it's at that point in in John 18 that we know that Jesus is back in Pilate's custody and the Jews are outside and so they won't come in. So they aren't unclean for the Passover week. And so Pilate comes out to them after speaking with Jesus and says he finds no fault with them, with him. That's Pilate's verdict. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. I want you to know there's nothing there. Can't, there's nothing wrong with him. And so Pilate then tries to get out of it again He tried to pass it off to this guy, but now he's going to pass it off by saying, hey, there's a tradition we have. When we all gather for this feast, you know I get to release one prisoner to you guys. By this time, all the crowds are gathered together. So he's a good politician. What's a good politician going to do? He's going to use the people against the opposite political party that he wants to upend, right? So that's what, he, that's what his thing is. And so now in verse 15, he says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release uh, for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate knew what was going on. Besides, verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream today. So very interesting, two things playing on Pilate's conscience. One, he knows he's innocent. Two, his wife has a dream and comes to him and says, don't mess with this guy. He's innocent. And so Pilate knows what he should do, but he's a politician. So he does what politicians do often. He tries to use the people against the Jews. And that's where we pick up. You have a, you have a prisoner. We've got Barabbas. He was one of your guys, an insurrectionist or Jesus, the Christ. Verse 20. And now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor said again to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? Are you sure? And they all said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Again, he keeps on reminding them, your Messiah, your Messiah, your Messiah. What should I do with him? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said to them, why? What evil has he done? You can just see Pilate like is really reluctant. He does not want this to happen. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. It's interesting that the Jews that day had a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas was a terrorist of sorts. He was an insurrectionist. He was a robber. And his name, Bar-Abbas, means son of a father. That's what it means. Very interesting. So what do you have there? You have a choice between the son of a father 
and the son of the father. And here they are. One son fulfilled the will of his father, robbing and stealing and pillaging and usurping. And the other son, silent, fulfilling the will of his father, laying down his life that others might live. You choose. This is the choice before the world. Two sons, two fathers. And they chose Barabbas. And that's the way it goes. You'll love one and you'll hate the other, so to speak. And Pilate is mystified. Why? He says, what evil has he done? Here's a secular Roman guy who is, if you read anything in history about Pilate, he's brutal. He would send guys with daggers into the crowd and stab the opposition and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he was, but nevertheless, he says here, he's innocent. What are you doing? And nevertheless, they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You can imagine the intensity of the crowd. The other gospels bring that out more. It is getting loud and loud and violent and it's getting raucousy. It's just, it's starting to get unhinged. And Pilate sees there's about to be a riot. And he's getting nervous there. Verse 25, and all the people answered. Well, actually verse 20, 24. So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was being beginning. And so he took the water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate sees that there's a riot going to happen and he cannot let the city get out of control because that's, he's going to lose his power. And there's a balance there. The choice that's made Jesus or your own position and doing it's right. And so Pilate chose to give the people what they wanted instead of doing what was right. And he washed his hands symbolically. Now, no, in no way does that wash Pilate of his guilt. He's just as guilty as the Jews for executing Jesus. And so verse 25, and all the people answered, says his blood be upon us and our children. They have no idea what they're saying. They have no idea what they're saying because his blood would be upon them and their children. They would come under the judgment of God. This is why the Lord wept over them earlier that week. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers the chicks, but you were not willing Verse 26, and then they released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. Crucified. This is that violent picture of the passion that we've all seen depicted where he is scourged. He was shredded. His back was shredded. And they deliver him over to be crucified. There's more going on there. But verse 27 says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him. They mocked him saying, hail King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. And we'll pick up at the crucifixion next week. The total display of the human heart, 
right there, the brutality of men towards the light. Just horrible. But in that, Jesus kept silent. He took it. Why? For you. For me. For our great sin against his Holy Father. He willingly went to the cross and became sin for us, was treated as if he were us, took the wrath of God for us. It's a mystery. For God so loved the world, loved you, loves you, that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe upon him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Arms open wide on the cross, lifted up high, that anybody who would look upon him would have eternal life. Look upon him in faith. Jesus in John 3, so just as the pole with the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And we know the story of the bronze pole in the Old Testament, I think Deuteronomy somewhere in there, or Numbers, can't remember, but... Israel had sinned against God, and so God sent a plague of serpents, and they were all dying. And they came to Moses, and they cried out and said, hey, we're dying here. And so God made a pole with a serpent on it, a bronze serpent, the very picture of the thing that was killing them, and lifted it up. And whoever would look upon it would be healed and be saved, and that's what Jesus became. He became sin for us. And whoever looks upon him in faith is saved from the sing of death and hell. Do you deserve it? I don't. But it's freely given. And here's the thing. All of us kind of in here, many of us here claim to be believers. And that's awesome. God's given, when Jesus was about to die on the cross that night before, before he went through this, just hours before, he sat down with his guys. And he sat down at the table and took the cup and he took the bread. This is my body. It's going to be broken for you. It's broken. Whipped, beaten, scorned. Broken. This is the blood of the new covenant. For without it, there is no remission of sin. You can't have your sins taken away. And his blood was spilled shortly on the cross for you, for me. And now... We have a way to the Father. The veil has been torn. His body has been broken. His blood has been shed. And he says, come. Come, anyone come. And these are the parables that the message goes out to the high and low. Come to me. Come to me. And those who were supposed to come did not come. And so he had to go to the highways and the byways and find the invalids and the lame and the prostitutes and all the people on the side. And they said, you come. The people who were supposed to hear, the ones who should have known, they did not come. They rejected me. They killed me. But you come, you Gentiles, you Walla Wallens. You come to me. Have you come? Come in faith. Come to the Father again and again and again. Come to him. Receive 
what he has provided for you through his son, forgiveness, fellowship, the cleansing of your conscience, rightness in relationship, new life, eternal life, what we were made for, for him, a new life. Light came into darkness, church. You ever been in a really dark room and you cannot find anything, even though you're in your own home? You ever had that situation? It's just too dark. You can't, like, where am I kind of a thing? And it's like coming to the Lord is he flips on the light and all becomes clear. And he just, it's a spiritual awakening that only God can do. And he does it through faith. Believe in his son. Amen. Come to him. So we're going to end with communion. I'll pray. And then would you come up to the tables and take the elements and bring them back to your, your seats and, and take them at will and just enjoy the fellowship of the father. And then we'll close with prayer again. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son who willingly went and endured all this. When at a moment he could call 12 legions of angels, but instead ridiculed, mocked, scorned, beaten. And even on the cross, he cries out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Heart of forgiveness, even in his humiliation. Lord, thank you for bringing salvation to us. We just want to enjoy this, Lord, and thank you for it. And Lord, we, want, we don't want to hold it to ourselves either. We want to give it away. So, Lord, with the forgiveness you've given us, the kindness you've given us, the mercy you've given us, help us to have eyes to go and see people with that same love and spread it to them. So we love you and we come to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. And come to the table.